text for our sermon this morning comes from Acts chapter 13. We will be looking at verses 13 through 41, which uh, largely relate to us this sermon that Paul preached in in, uh, the city of Antioch. Now, this is a a different Antioch than the one we've heard about in in prior sermons. This is Antioch in, in Pisidia. Uh, Pisidia is uh, or or was uh, a province um, in uh, the Roman Empire in the first century. Uh, Pisidia is uh, known nowadays, or at least uh, it's part of what makes up modern-day Turkey. Um, And so uh, that's the geographical region that uh, Paul is in, and he's... Uh, in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, uh, preaching to the people there. And so let's hear God's word as we find it now in uh, Acts 13, beginning in verse uh, 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotments. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. When he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. As John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. And when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, the promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, 
as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not see, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. All around us, there are words of encouragement. You go on social media and you will see posts that say, you are awesome, you are doing good work, don't stress, you've got this. You drive around town and you see billboards that say things like hashtag good vibes or don't forget to smile today. I think this is all indicative of, of the fact that the world recognizes there's something wrong with culture. People are discouraged. They need words of encouragement. The number of stressed out and depressed people seems to be at an all-time high. Yet the world seems to be responding to that with a relatively cheap, you're doing good, hang in there. However, that's not what I intend to convey with this sermon title this morning. Sermon title, uh, A Message of Encouragement. And a message of that phrase is, is actually a phrase we find in our text. It's the name given to the sermon that Paul preached in the synagogue at Antioch in Pisidia. We read in verse 15, And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation to the people, say on. Uh, that word exhortation uh, can certainly have the idea of exhortation, but it can also be translated as encouragement or, or comfort or consolation. And that's the uh, translation I, I am going to be going with here. It's, it's a word of encouragement to the people in this synagogue. And what a true, deep, and meaningful message of encouragement Paul preaches to this synagogue in Antioch. Paul ultimately preaches the greatest word of encouragement that could ever be given. Paul clearly presents the gospel of Jesus Christ and boldly offers Jesus Christ to sinners. He proclaims a God-ordained message of encouragement. I'm confident that this is a relevant message for each one of you gathered here this morning. 
regardless of who you are, regardless of how you feel, you are in need of this message of encouragement. You are in need of Christ. Paul preached in the synagogue to a diverse audience. The synagogue, there were those who were Jews, those who were circumcised, who followed every aspect of the law of God. Some likely Jews by descent, others Jews uh, who were proselytized and and adjoined uh, the synagogue. But Paul also addressed the God-fearers, those who were very interested in Judaism but had issues with things like circumcision. Paul addresses both, both of them. And he says, gives the same message to both of them. Both of them stand in need of the same Christ. The same is true for each one of you today. You stand in need of Christ. You need the encouragement that only Christ can can give. And so we find, we will find, that a sermon that was preached over 2,000 years ago is as relevant for that Jewish audience as it is relevant for you this day. A word of encouragement that God was pleased to use to bless those who heard it. God will indeed be pleased to bless again as we hear from God's word in Acts 13. Now, Paul began his sermon by by calling his hearers' attention to God's sovereign and faithful preparation for Christ. Now, even though this is the first Pauline sermon recorded for us by Luke and and the Acts of the Apostles, this was by no means the first time Paul preached. We know that shortly after Paul's conversion, he was already preaching in the synagogues in Damascus. Acts 9, verse 20 says, Immediately, He preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on on this name in Jerusalem and had come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? So Paul, already prior to his first missionary journey, prior to, to giving this sermon in Antioch, he's already known for being a faithful preacher of Christ. He's already known for his preaching gifts. Now here, Paul is in the synagogue in in Antioch, and and what a a sermon we have recorded for us. It's a sermon that that has some degree of similarity with with sermons we've already seen in the New Testament. There's some similarity with uh, with the sermons Peter has preached. And yet there's, there's remarkable difference, a difference, I think, that highlights Oh, the power of God's word, a, a difference that, that shows the individuality of, of both uh, Peter and Paul, where Paul brings up different texts, and calls them to mind, and applies them uh, uh, to his audience. Whereas Peter had his, his text he would, he would regularly go to. Paul has, has some of those same texts, but also different texts that he brings to bear on his audience. And I think that, that shows the, the remarkability of, of God's living word. 
God's word is, is powerful and, and works uh, uniquely and, and differently in, in various people who hear that word. But perhaps one of the touching elements of this sermon that Paul preaches is, is its uh, similarity with the sermon Stephen preached in Acts 7. You will recall that when uh, Stephen preached in Acts 7, you know, before the Jewish Sanhedrin, he went on this long history of, of the people of Israel, a history that uh, you know, most of his audience likely knew very, very well. And yet uh, Stephen preaches that sermon to, to draw out various themes. And, and here we see Paul doing much the same thing. He's, he, he, he starts way back in Israel's history with Israel and Egypt. And he brings out a history that all, all his audience is going to know. And yet he brings that history out to press home various points. But it's very interesting that Paul emulates the style of Stephen's sermon. Paul, after all, had been there. He had heard Stephen's sermon. He had seen the Jews' reaction to Stephen's sermon he had seen how they stopped their ears and ran at Stephen and dragged him away to be stoned. And Paul had stood there holding their coats while they stoned Stephen. Yet Paul is a remarkably changed man now. He's preaching much the same sermon that Stephen himself had preached See there, certainly, that the power of God's word, the power of God unto salvation. And Paul wants to, to strongly emphasize in his sermon to this somewhat diverse audience of, of Jew and Gentile. wants to emphasize that God is sovereign in dealing with his people. He mentioned that he's preaching to those who are familiar with the Old Testament. And so Paul's not just relaying the history of Israel for, for the sake of giving them a history lesson. They already know that. No, Paul has, has a very particular intent in mentioning what he does in, in giving this history of God's people. And he wants to drive home that God has dealt sovereignly with Israel. Notice what Paul says. He says, God chose our fathers. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. And that's the start to a long list of, of, of sentences where God is the subject and Israel is the audience. Paul is going to uh, hammer home. God did this for you. And we see this uh, uh, in, the, in this first third of his sermon. <coughs> uh, God exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. God, with an uplifted arm, brought them out of Egypt. God put up with their ways in the wilderness. God destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan. God distributed their land to them by allotment. God gave them judges. God gave them Saul as king. God removed Saul as king. God raised up David as king. God gave David a good testimony. And finally, God raised up for Israel's Savior, even Jesus. Paul's hammering home. God did this. God was sovereign. You didn't do that. God did this. 
And all this history is driving home the reality that Messiah isn't someone who just happens to appear in human history. Instead, the Messiah is a divinely appointed person who was sent by God. He was a product of a long history of God's dealing with his people. He was not made the Messiah by the approval of the people, but was approved by God for this specific work. And God prepared all of human history for the arrival of Christ. You notice that Paul started his sermon with uh, a saying, God chose our people Israel. God didn't choose the Egyptians. God didn't choose the Syrians. God didn't even choose the Grecians. He didn't even choose the Syrians. No, God chose Israel. And that was with a specific purpose. Because then we see Paul get his focus a little narrower. And he says, God chose put Saul in place to be king. Saul, a Benjamite. Then we read God rejected Saul as king. He rejected the line of Benjamin. Then he chose David as king, a man everyone knows to be of the tribe of Judah. God chose David, the line of David. As we read in, in 2 Samuel 7, this line of David would be a line, the messianic line, line that from which would come Jesus Christ. David was not the Messiah, but Jesus Christ was that Savior who was raised up for Israel. How many countless numbers of people are looking for their own Messiah? History has countless false messiahs from Hitler to David Koresh. These false messiahs rise up because people have have wants that they think they need fulfilled. And and they look to, to these men to fulfill their needs. There's no need for you to be searching for a Messiah anymore. All you need to do is is look at Scripture. See who the Messiah is from Scripture. And believe, recognize that that God in His sovereignty has, has directed all of history for the arrival of Christ. For here in Scripture... The one Messiah is presented, the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophecies of Scripture and the fulfillment of history. I note it's very interesting that Paul brings up in his sermon the example of Saul. You you might think that was just something uh, uh, Paul could have passed over. Why did he need to bring up Saul in this sermon? The problem with Saul was that he was the king that Israel wanted. In a certain sense, you could say he was the Messiah Israel wanted. When Saul was selected as king, they were, in a sense, rejecting God as their king. And saying, no, we want this man, Saul. We want someone we can see with our eyes. We want to be like the nations around us. Here was this this young, strong, and tall man named Saul. 
Israel thought, well, he would be our savior. Yet he turned out to be a wicked king. So God appointed David. David who was a nobody. David who, who Samuel passed over. He was just a boring old shepherd boy. Paul thus intentionally mentions the failure of Saul to drive home to his audience that their expectation of the Messiah is going to be mistaken. If they're going in with their own preconceived notions about the Messiah, they are going to be mistaken. And Paul presses home the point that you need to submit to what Scripture says the Messiah is. You need to trust God's sovereignty and not your own wisdom. This comes out in that first quotation from the Old Testament that Paul makes here. Paul loosely quotes a mix of Psalm 89, verse 20, and 1 Samuel 13, 14, when he says in verse 22, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Right after mentioning Paul, sorry, Saul's failure as king, Paul emphasizes the need for people to be obedient following the heart of God and not following their own hearts, just as David was a man after God's heart who did God's will. In other words, Saul is saying, if these men of Israel, if these God-fearers who are gathered in the synagogue are to know the true Messiah, They must acknowledge God's sovereignty. A sovereignty seen in John the Baptist preparing the way of Christ. A preparation clearly prophesied in Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. A similar message comes to you today. If you are to know Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, you must acknowledge God's sovereignty and seek to know from Scripture who the Christ is. When you see God's sovereign preparation of Christ, the words of the Scriptures don't just become a jumbled collection of, of a bunch of human authors who, who are all just writing their own thing. But instead, you, you see a unified whole, all pointing to the coming of Christ and, and how the Old Testament prophesies of the coming of Christ with, with hundreds of different prophecies and how the Gospels demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills all those prophecies and therefore need to believe in Christ. The di- Christ is the divinely appointed Savior. After Paul introduces Jesus Christ in his sermon, a name his audience likely by this time had some familiarity with, Paul drives home the Jews' rejection of Christ. Now, he started his sermon calling his hearers to attention by saying, men of Israel and those who fear God. In the middle of his sermon, he again says those words, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. He calls them to attention. Wake up. He says, 
My message is very specifically for you. All of history has led up to this point. And this message is specifically for you because this message has been preached in Jerusalem and yet the Jerusalem Jews have rejected this message of Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul says, to you the word of salvation has been sent for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not know him nor even the voice of the prophets which are read every Sabbath have fulfilled them in condemning him. Paul differentiates these two different Jewish audiences. He differentiates the the Jewish audience, uh, the the rulers in Jerusalem who have condemned Jesus to death. And and he he says, I recognize you are not those people. These Jews condemned Jesus to death. But what are you going to do with Jesus? He urges them not to make the same wrong judgment that the Jerusalem Jews did. He urges them to reject their judgment concerning the Christ. The Jerusalem Jews killed the very Messiah that was sovereignly prepared by God. And while Paul condemns their actions here, he also gives a warning to his hearers. He has just said this message is for them. This message was originally just as much for the Jews in Jerusalem. Christ came, remember, for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He preached calling them to believe on his name. He walked the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming the gospel of peace, performing wonders and signs such that no one could doubt that this indeed is a man divinely sent by God. And yet, they still rejected him. And a clear warning here for Paul's audience is that there are people who might assume they know God, yet they still do not know him. This is true even among the sons of Abraham. Even though they read the prophets every Sabbath day. Paul Paul emphasizes that fact. These people had the prophets read Every single Sabbath day. Yet they still did not know the Christ when he came to them. The same holds true for us here this morning. Just because you are here in the church this morning does not mean you know the voice of Christ. Just because you adhere to our style of worship and our system of church government does not mean that you know Christ. We are given insight into our text, into the, the conduct of a worship service in a synagogue. Right before Paul preached, they read the law and the prophets, just like we did. There's no possibility... There's no possible way that anyone in the synagogue could claim ignorance of the Scriptures. They heard those prophecies read. They they knew them. And so something else was keeping them from, from hearing the voice of Christ. It was their own sinful hearts. Their hardened hearts that love and, and are blinded by sin that was keeping them from 
seemed uh, these prophecies spoke of Christ. The danger we must be on guard against. Jews outwardly worshipped Christ according to the scriptures, yet that outward worship of God did not save them. Instead, it was used as a means to condemn Jesus Christ because they exalted themselves above the very God of the universe. They claimed to be followers of the law and condemned the one who had given them that law. They thought they were the true knowers of the law. They thought they knew how to rightly interpret Scripture, but their pride got in the way of them seeing the Christ. Let's be very careful that we do not simply profess a knowledge of the law, yet not know the law. We must be on guard that our pride does not blind us to who Christ is. The Jews professed obedience to the law of God, yet Christ would tell them to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The Jews professed obedience to the law, yet they ended up breaking the very law in crucifying Christ. Notice what Paul says in verse 28 of our text. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. That's remarkable. These men claimed to be the followers of Moses. These men had the the law and the prophets read every Sabbath day. And yet they willfully and intentionally violated the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. They also violated God's law when it came to requirement for witnesses. They as sinners stood in judgment over the innocent and condemned the innocent to death. Paul warns the Jews here in Antioch They need to be very careful that they do not commit the same error that their fellow Jews did in Jerusalem. Yet Paul once again wants to emphasize that God was ultimately sovereign over this. Paul says, Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. These men... These Jews put Jesus to death. And in doing so, were fulfilling the very scriptures regarding the Messiah. They thought they were putting to death a heretic, a blasphemer. They were thought they were destroying this man. Yet in God's perfect sovereignty, they were fulfilling beautifully every prophecy of Christ. And yet, The great irony is that as their own hands were getting red with his blood, the blindness of their hearts were preventing them from seeing them fulfill the very scriptures they claimed to know. What a sobering statement of man's blindness, man's sinful blindness. What a statement of the power of sin to keep us from the truth. And what a need we have for God to open our eyes so that we might see, so that we might not be blind. The Jews were eagerly longing for a Savior, even knowing the passages of Scripture that prophesied of Christ. Yet their sin blinded them, such that they did not see themselves as fulfilling the text that they knew intimately. The Jews rejected Christ 
The question comes to you this morning from Paul's sermon. What will you do with Christ? What will you do with the one who rose again on the third day, conquering death? What will you do with the one who was seen for many days by those who came up from Galilee to Jerusalem? My prayer that you would accept Christ as he is richly and freely offered to you in the gospel this morning. Paul offered Christ to his hearers in Antioch, and so I offer Christ to you this morning. Paul says, to you the word of salvation has been sent. To you specifically, who are gathered this morning, the word of salvation has been sent. Paul says, we declare glad tidings to you. I I declare to you the glad tidings of the gospel of Christ. Paul says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you cannot be justified by the law of Moses. And here is, is our great need of Christ. Here's your great need of Christ. You don't need Christ to deliver you from the heated political climate of the United States. You don't need Christ to deliver you from your job situation. You don't need Christ to give you your best life now. You don't need Christ to give you friends. You need Christ to save you from your sins. That's ultimately your greatest need. As I said before, people look for, for at Messiahs to, to supply all their needs that they think they need met. But Christ tells you what your greatest need is. And your greatest need is deliverance from your sins. You need Christ to save you from them. And this is the great encouragement you need. It may not be what you want, but it's certainly what you need. Because in Romans three twenty. Paul would say, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. It's impossible to be made right with God apart from Christ. Not even obedience to the law can make you right with him. You cannot acquit yourself by the law because the law will ultimately turn and condemn you. It will ruin you. If you rightly understand the law, all the law can do, all the law can say to you is, you are guilty. You are guilty of murder. You are guilty of fornication. You are guilty of blasphemy. You are guilty of breaking the Sabbath day. You are guilty of lying. The law cries out against us saying, you deserve condemnation. You are worthless. You can't do anything right. You deserve to die. You deserve the fires of hell. Is that not what our conscience says so often to us? Does not our our conscience condemn us in the quiet of night? Does it not cry out to us saying, we are guilty? Yet the gospel says, Through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified in the law of Moses. 
Jesus Christ alone acquits you of the condemning statements of the law. He acquits you. He declares you are guiltless. You are innocent. Because he was crucified on that cross. And Paul says that Jesus was crucified not on a cross but on a tree because the Jews would have been very familiar with Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 which says this, His body shall not remain overnight on a tree but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance for he who is hanged is cursed of God. Jesus Christ was accursed of God. He hung on that tree. And yet he was accursed of God so that you might not be accursed. So all the condemnation of the law might be silenced. He bore the punishment for sin. Paul says here, the law cannot possibly confer forgiveness of sins. But there's one person who can confer forgiveness of sins, and that is Jesus Christ. If you're looking for forgiveness of sins from the law, believe me, you will receive none. The law says, I will not forgive you. There are a sad number of people who are deceived and think, well, I'm a good person, so, so God will be merciful to me. Yet these people are are greatly deceived. They are thinking the law can confer forgiveness, but it's impossible for the law to grant forgiveness. Only in Christ is there forgiveness. Paul says, By him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The law of Moses does not justify Only in Christ is there justification. And he is freely offered to you this morning. Will you accept Christ? Will you own Christ? This is the greatest word of encouragement you will ever hear. And is one that applies to every single one of you. Will you hear this word of encouragement? Will you accept it? You might have come into worship this morning thinking your great problem was the state of your finances or the family troubles you're having or your sickness or even the state of the church. But your greatest problem this morning is that you are a sinner before God and the law condemns you. Your greatest problem is that you need the redemption and mercy of God. I urge you to find redemption in Christ He's offered to everyone this morning. Notice what Paul says. And by him, everyone, everyone who believes, not just some of you, not just those of you who are good enough, not just those of you who come from good families. Our text says, everyone who believes is justified. Everyone. Here is the grace of God. Not that you have to obey the law that you have to believe in Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And what is it to believe on Christ? Well, it's to humbly confess that there is no hope in yourself or in any other for salvation. 
is to cast yourself upon Christ, trusting that he is who he says he is, trusting that he has saved you. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. I apologize for the length of this quote, but I believe it's, it's very helpful for us as we think of what it means to believe on Christ. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, If I say that I believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God, what I am saying is this, that I realize that I am only just passing through this world, and I am always under the eye of God, and I know that when I come to die, that I and all others will have to stand before God, and that I see clearly that I am condemned and lost, and nothing I can do will save me that I am going inevitably to the direction of that judgment. But I now see that God has so loved me that he sent his only begotten son to bear my sins and their punishment. He gave his life for me. He died that I might be forgiven. And I believe he came right out of heaven to here on earth to do that for me, to save me from the appalling consequence. And therefore, having seen that, I forsake the life I live and the world I belong to and I go after him. Believing includes all that. It means a total view of life. It means that we come to see the biggest and the most important thing in this life is that we realize this business of this eternal destiny and we become urgent and desperate. That we've seen the truth and we've clung to him and we're trusting him. And now obviously we are going to avoid everything that has produced this calamity in the history of the race. That is what believing the Lord Jesus Christ means. Do you believe this? Do you believe in Christ? If you do not believe, Paul has a warning for you. Remember that Stephen, when he preached to the Jews in Acts 7, ended his sermon with a warning as well. Well, Paul ends his sermon warning his audience of judgment. He quotes from Habakkuk saying, Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Habakkuk was a contemporary of Jeremiah. Jeremiah and Habakkuk both preached against Jerusalem's wickedness. Yet Jerusalem did not heed Jeremiah's warning and were judged because of that. Babylon came against her and razed Jerusalem to the ground, destroying the temple and dragging the people out to captivity. So bring warning here is that God works judgment upon those who don't hear his word. God would do a similar thing with Jerusalem in AD 70. When the Romans came against Jerusalem, and destroyed Jerusalem. God worked a work in the days of those who were gathered here in the synagogue that Paul was preaching to. The question that you must hear, the question that you must bear before you is what work will God do in your days with those who reject his word? The pattern of God dealing with people in this world is he calls them to repentance he pour, he freely offers christ as he is in the gospel he calls people to believe on him he's long-suffering and slow to anger delaying his judgment 
crying out, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yet ultimately, judgment comes. So I urge you this morning to fly to Christ. Find in him salvation. Be encouraged with this word that Jesus Christ has come. And through this man, Jesus Christ, is proclaimed the forgiveness of sins to everyone who believes. What an encouragement we need this morning in this world when our own sins testify against us. That we have a Savior in Christ the Lord who has washed us as white as snow, purchased us with his own blood that we might rejoice in him for all eternity. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that this man, this God-man, has redeemed us, has washed us from our sins, that we no longer stand contempt. Oh, Lord, it's our prayer. That, Lord, this message of hope, this encouraging message might be powerfully used to save those who do not know you. Father, your love for us is indeed a great love. You have provided us a Savior. Lord, help us to believe on his name. We pray. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would do this in the name.